This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Erica here, and today I have a special pop-up episode for you. It's not my normal kind of interview, but I thought it would be fun to try my first pop-up episode. So today I'm talking and sharing my conversation with my friend Billy Hallowell. He's the Director of Communications and Content at PureFlix, a film company that distributes faith and family-based movies and documentaries. In fact, they were behind the recent big hit, Unplanned, about the life of former Planned Parenthood director Abby Johnson. Billy is also the author of three books and a podcaster himself. So today we chat about the crossover of faith and politics, a passion that we both share, and what it's like to be a conservative who isn't a big fan of President Trump during the Trump era. This conversation is definitely more political than my normal shows. So if that's not your thing, feel free to skip it. But if you do listen, just have an open mind and enjoy the conversation. Hey, Erica, how's it going today? Good. How are you? Good, good. I'm, I'm excited that we're getting a chance to sit down and, and chat. And I think, um, you know, listeners are going to find this conversation interesting for a lot of reasons. And, you know, your career, for those who don't know, you're a speaker, you're an author, um, you've got a great podcast, you wrote a phenomenal book, Leaving Cloud Nine, uh, which I've had a chance to talk with you about in the past. Um, but one of the things about you that I find really interesting, and I think it's because I'm in the same space, is trying to sort of work through the crazy culture and world that we're in right now and the crazy political world that we're in right now and live our faith out and and finding balance and trying to figure out where it all fits. And so I know um, we're around the same age, and I just think it's super it's super interesting getting a chance to talk to people in a similar not only sort of mental space and spiritual space, but also professional space. And so, we're going to kind of go back and forth and, and chat and, and interview one another here. But I wanted to just start with, because what I don't, I actually don't know a lot about your, you know, deeper background, like how, how you got into, because I know from, from your experience, you got more into media and sort of politics first. So how did, how did that happen for you? Yeah, well, I came to Washington, D.C. a long time ago as an intern, just expecting to stay for a few months and didn't ever intend on really getting deeply involved in politics. I just felt like I needed some kind of internship experience. And I ended up kind of falling in love with the city of Washington, D.C. and realizing how much I loved politics and how interested I was in how policymaking happens and just recognizing that once you're in Washington, D.C. and you're kind of working in that sphere, you really are very close to the people at the top. Like you're in the Capitol building, like you're walking by senators, you you know never know who you're going to meet um, in the hallways. And, it, and to me, I found that so fascinating. So my first year in Washington kind of got me hooked and I began to get extremely interested in politics. I started doing a reporting job and ultimately ended up working on Capitol Hill for uh, two members of Congress. I actually work for um, Vice President Mike Pence, which was really awesome. And I'm from Indiana, so it was even cooler. And um, I've stayed in that space. Um, but along the way, over the past 10, 11 years, have kind of transitioned from more of a focus on politics exclusively to 
um, focusing on you know communications, media, and integrating my faith into that, which is something that's a little bit more new here in the past couple of years. And I know that we share that kind of crossover yeah. in the politics, and it's become very interesting, especially since the since the 2016 election got started in 2015, really. And um, I'm sure you know what I mean by that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's and I think that was really the fever pitch point for so many of us because it was so difficult. And then watching, you know, and the word evangelical, I know people get worked up because it's like, what is an evangelical? But I, you know, non-denominational Christians, Bible-believing Christians, like splitting over Trump and all of that. And then what that meant for just the public voice that everybody had, right? And not only that, but, and, and I wanted to ask you this, just like hearing, because I know, I know that history is fascinating, working with Pence and kind of being there and I don't want to get you in trouble, but like, is there any, is there anything like work? So working on Capitol Hill, um, and, and dabbling in and out of, of communications and media, you know, were you, did you leave that jaded at all? Were you encouraged? Like, what was that experience like for you in terms of just how you felt about politics after? Yeah. Well, the, the first thing that comes to mind is just that I saw how, how things were done behind the scenes. And I recognized there's really no getting out of this without p probably compromising something that you really believe in if you're a politician. Because in order to get a deal done, get a bill passed, get something into writing that you believe is important for your district, um, you end up having to compromise something. And I, it's kind of funny because it was at that time that the Tea Party was getting really big. And of course, I'm a conservative, and so I was aligned with the Tea Party in a lot of ways. But I started to get a little bit frustrated with them at times because I was, I felt like they wanted purity, ideological purity at all times. And a lot of people didn't recognize that in order to get things done, you actually do have to have some bit of compromise. Right, right. And so I feel like I got a lot of perspective on on that side of things. And, and certainly now I'm much more of a, I wouldn't call myself a moderate, I'm certainly still conservative, but... I am much more supportive of people that are willing to compromise and kind of come to the table and reach across the aisle. And that's been kind of an evolution over the past decade of working in this space. Yeah. And it's interesting. There was a story about Mike Pence that I found, and I'm probably going to butcher it. And so whatever, but I'm going to try to remember, but it was like, it was the whole needle exchange thing, which, mm -hmm. you know, I have really, I have strong views on, but I understand why people would compromise those views in certain moments. And there was a, a situation when he was governor where there were certain towns, I can't remember the exact details, where people, where the HIV levels were insane. And, you know, he was opposed to a needle exchange program, but he actually sat down with uh, one of the sheriffs, I believe, and the sheriff made the case. And, and he, he ended up, Mike Pence, and I thought this was really fascinating, saying, okay, even though I'm opposed to this, in this particular situation, I am going, we are going to allow this because it is in this particular situation going to help solve the problem. And that's what experts are telling me. And I just thought to me, and I'm, again, I'm butchering the story, but it was an example of somebody being willing to say, you know, okay, there may be situations where I have to actually bend on something and, and, and being flexible to do that, I think actually can speak to someone's character, you know? Um, yeah, and, and, I definitely yeah. think he made the right choice in that situation. And when it comes to that issue, you know, I'm I'm pretty um, I, I stay kind of up to speed on the addiction crisis in this country. And um, I think when it comes to that issue specifically, that there's a lot of people that maybe have had to change their mindsets on that. And I definitely think that was the right uh, decision for him to make. You're right. Even though he wasn't 100 percent with it, he maybe didn't fully grasp, you know, why or why not. But um, yeah, I totally agree with you.
Yeah, it's so it's so interesting, and and just like coming out. So I guess, yeah. I mean, and if you, I I don't know. I can tell you like my experience, which it has been interesting the last couple of years. Is I kind of find myself living in this weird world of. Mo- there are moments where people are like, oh, you're defending Trump and you love Trump, which is not the case. And there are moments I do defend him because the media narrative is just so crazy. And then there are moments where it's like you are anti-Trump and, you know, you're a rhino and blah, blah. And I'm not I mean, I'm actually a registered independent who is conservative. I've always been conservative. I've always been center right. You know, I'm willing to look at issues and and try to understand them. And, you know, I tend to resonate more with the Republican Party um, or historically I have because the values, even though I don't agree with everything, are more in line with with mine. But but I found myself in this tricky position of try of constantly annoying somebody, right? Or feeling like, <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I just don't really fit into either sort of paradigm, like the MAGA or the I hate my I, I hate Trump camp, right? So Right. Well, and it was like before this, you we didn't have to do that. It wasn't such a divide. But I guess this is a good a good spot for me to ask you to kind of give your history, um, you know, leading up to where you are now and, and how you ended up in your position. Yeah, it's it's so weird because I have always been very terrible at being like, okay, God, you know, bring me where you want me. I've always been like, I'm going to go where I want. I'm going to do what I want. And that's it. Right. And I love you, God. Like, you know, and I try to fit him in where, and that's terrible, but that's mm-hmm. the reality of where I've traditionally been. And so when I was very young, when I was about 15, the Columbine shooting happened. So I was a freshman in high school at the time. And that event, basically, I won't go through all the details, but even though I lived in New York, I was nowhere near it. It really sort of shocked me into awareness of the world around me. And I started wanting to you know, try to prevent events like that. And I became a speaker and a writer really young. I had you know, a column on a website called Shine. It was an organization in New York City. Um, And I had a column, I think I was about 18 when I started that. And so it was really good because I got a chance to write young and then I went to journalism school. And, you know, but somewhere in that process, it was interesting because I was obsessed with politics. It's all I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to report on politics. I wanted to debate about politics. And, you know, over the course of the years, you know, I was at the blaze for about five and a half years and I, and I was the faith editor there and I, and I could never figure out why I always ended up in the faith space, right? I was a Christian and I loved God and I loved going to church every week and being, you know, living my faith out, but I wanted my work to be totally separate from that. Right. And yeah, I don't know. God just kept putting me in. I ended up working for Campus Crusade and development for a couple of years. I ended up, you know, it just it was always getting sucked back in. Even when I ended up again at the Blaze, it was in Faith. I ended up at Faithwire. Right? So at some point, I was like, <laughs> message to Billy. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and now I'm at Pureflix, which I never would have thought in a million years that that would have happened. So it's just now I'm kind of in this space of okay, God, like where do you want me? And I've been there for a couple of years now, and it feels strange, but really good. And the doors that open are really fascinating. So that's a very quick overview. But yeah, it's just like avoiding where God wants you sometimes still ends ends up landing you there, right? You in a weird way. Yeah, you, you, be- you basically, you can't miss um, where he ultimately wants you to go if you are. Um, I think it's, you know, you know, if you are, you know, speaking with him, you're kind of like living your life, attempting to uh, do it the way that God wants you to. You're, you're not going to miss it if you're in communication with him, I think. And I, I, it's funny that you say that because um, for the longest time, I always said, well, you know, I have my polit- political life and then I have my faith life and they really don't cross over. And I thought that's the way it was supposed to be. 
And then it was a few years ago that things started to change where I was like, I started to see all these kind of leaders that I really respected, like um, Dr. Russell Moore is one of them. Um, I was working at National Review at the time and I was a big fan of David French. And I was like, wait a second. Now, these guys are strong Christians, but they're also making commentary in the political space and they're mixing that together. And it was so appealing to me and so fascinating to me how they did it. And they weren't doing it in a way, of course, that was like, you know, a theocracy, <laughs> not, right, not pushing right. for something like that. And I certainly don't advocate for that. But I, for the first time, realized that these two things can, in a way, go hand in hand. And I can talk about politics um, and have my faith guide that. And I felt like we do have a somewhat of a civic duty as Christians. And I was curious how you felt about that. Like, what is the civic duty of a Christian? And what is our kind of role in that space? Yeah, I think it's so funny because I've been thinking so much about this because it's something that has haunted me a little bit in terms of like, okay, well, we've I feel like people on both sides, the progressive Christians, they attach themselves to the Democratic Party. And mainstream Christianity, the majority of Christianity attaches itself to the Republican Party. And for me, it's been more like, okay, well, we should be attaching ourselves to issues because issues mm -hmm. affect people, right? You know, so that's where, you know, we should be caring. Obviously, when you think about what Jesus told us, he told us, love God, love others. And I think too often we either opt for truth or love. You know, it's like, well, I'm just going to love people and I'm not going to tell them the truth, which actually in a weird way is not loving them at all. Even though you think you are, you're actually not sharing the truth with them. Um, and then on the other side, it's like truth, truth, truth. I'm just going to beat people over the head with the fact that if they don't do this, they're not going to be able to go to heaven if they don't do that. And it's like, well, now you've you've lost love. And so to me, it's more about we have we have a responsibility and a duty to talk about issues, to respond when something is happening. But I would imagine that a healthy balance would be to sometimes agree with a politician or a party and sometimes to disagree and not to be argumentative, but to do it because you care about people and issues. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I think that's so many of us have found ourselves in the space where you, you know, you hear yourself called a pro-Trump or, or an anti-Trumper and it's like we're sitting here going but it's not like that it's it's about the issues and it should be about the issues and it shouldn't be you know this is not a new thing it should never have been about the politician in the first place um, but I do think it's kind of gotten personality driven not just with Trump but with Obama as well um, to where I don't know if that's true I mean of course the, I've gotten Older, like when I, I when Obama took office, I was you know finally getting really immersed in politics at that time. So before, I don't feel like I have like a wonderful perspective perspective on if it was as personality driven with Bush and Clinton. Um, but it seems to me it's gotten more and more that way, just kind of overlooking um, negatives of people or making excuses or justifications for why they're doing or saying something. And um, I don't think it should ever be that way that we're elevating a person to this place of um, almost, uh, you know, perfection or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, totally. I mean, it's reality show culture. Like you think about, it's funny because we have a president who was a reality star, but, but and we have an, <laughs> and we had a former president who one of the first things that he did was get a contract with Netflix to create content. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying like we, it's very clear to me that, you know, that we, that our pop culture and our culture and our politics have merged. And you're even seeing this, 
with, you know, AOC and Elizabeth Warren sitting down and which is fine. You know, they're talking about Game of Thrones and it's it's funny and it's whatever. But <laughs> I think and, and I don't I guess I don't necessarily have too much of an issue with that part of things like sometimes being relevant. And as long as it's not disingenuous, but but to me, I don't know. I mean, there's just a level of things we should expect from a president. Right. And I think that that has continued to go downhill. I, I think like we just like there's just certain things I don't want a president tone wise saying or doing. Um, and at the same time, I recognize and I think this is what is such a challenge about Trump um, is that you have somebody who in so many ways, the rhetoric is horrific and unwarranted and terrible. And then on, and then you have this dynamic and this is a real challenge and you might disagree with this, which is great because I love to talk it through because um, I like to be challenged. But like spiritually, it's a challenge because you see a situation where one side is so almost unhinged on certain issues and you almost have a moment where you say, well, do you need a fighter? Like not from a Christian perspective, but from a political perspective, do you need a fighter in that position to combat those ideas? Is that something you actually need that doesn't make it right, but is it something politically that you need? Uh, yeah, so I struggle with that. Well, you know, I, I will say I did not vote for Trump, and I don't think I even had a moment. I did, I guess, for a moment consider, but I didn't vote for him. And But now, you know, having been in this thing for three years with him and still not a big, still not a big fan, but recognizing that um, he has put some good people on the Supreme Court, he has push some good policies. I don't agree with all of his policies by any means. Same. Yeah. But um but I look at the situation, I think he his character sucks. I think he's kind of slimy. I uh, yeah. don't have a lot of good things to say about him. However, um I do think what's best for the American people in terms of policy, um it's a hard it's a hard thing to say. I don't know who I'm going to vote for in 2020. I will not probably know until the day comes. Um, I would love it if there was a Democrat that I could support. I would love that. I've never been in a situation <laughs> yeah. where Same. that's been the case um, in the presidential election. Um, but there are some people that I like. I mean, hey, Mark Cuban thought about running. I don't know. Um, right. But <laughs> he, he said something the other day. So we'll see what happens with that. Not that we need another person in that race. Um, but it's it's going to be a hard sell for me to find anyone on the other side that I'm going to vote for that I think is going to do anything truly positive in the long term for the American people. And so, again, I feel like I'm going to be stuck at, at a rock and a hard place, um, just as I was in 2016, um, in terms of who to vote for because of kind of what you said. And, uh, you know, what I see the left pushing, I just cannot get on board with almost anything right now. Yeah. So it's, it's just so a extreme. really tough place to be. <laughs> Well, it, and it's such a challenge. And here's the thing now. Yeah, I mean, it, the thing for me is that I think I struggled so much in 2016. I was like, I'm not voting. I'm not voting. And, you know, I live in New York. So for me, it's like, OK, well, whether I vote or not, it has never, unfortunately. And I do think it matters. But realistically, it doesn't matter because the state is so swayed by New York City and which is actually I live just outside of New York City. You know, it's it's a one track mind arena here. You know, everybody thinks one way. I'm like the strange weirdo that nobody understands why I think what I think or why I believe what I believe. <laughs> but, you know, um, it's a struggle. I do think, and I'm going to say this cautiously, I don't know who I'm going to vote for. It's less of a struggle at this moment, but that will change once the election kicks up and Trump keeps tweeting crazy things and I start to feel grossed out again. And Yeah, you know, I just saw something this morning. I don't know if it's true, but it was something about 
him saying some something really crazy last night, and I can't, I'll have to look it through. But it was one of those moments where I was like, okay, I might have we, to. Right. <laughs> here we He's go again. Worst enemy because I think that if he just reined it in, the the ideas coming from the other side so far are so over the top and wacky in many ways, not all of them, but a lot, a lot of the ideas that, mm -hmm. that I think he would have goodwill from Pete. I think people would actually maybe hold their nose, but he just, does, he can't bring himself. No, to he do like that. doesn't, he like doesn't have the capacity and it's so, but it is such a gamble too with him just because, you know, in terms of how he deals with North Korea and his foreign policy tactics, which haven't been disastrous necessarily in that many ways yet, but we don't know, ever right. know what he's going to do. And so it's, it's just a really, it's, tough. it's frustrating. I'm frustrated that this is, the, that we came to this place, that this is the person that we had to, that was brought to be the person for the Republican Party. Um, I get it in some ways. Like if you've read, did you read um, Tim Carney's book? Alienated America. No, but I've read a lot about the book, and I think it's interesting. really good. And h h the whole thing is focused on the people that voted for Trump in the primaries that got him to this place. Where you know that's not you and me. That's not right. you know probably a lot of the people that we know necessarily. Um, but it made sense, you know. And it's you know so I can't I can't blame people that are kind of living in a place where they felt like they needed this kind of savior. Um, if you read that book, it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of great information in there. Um, but I was going to ask you in terms of, we've been talking a little bit about pop culture and how it integrates there. And you have kind of worked in that space forever. You were at the blaze and, um, then you're at Faithwire, and now you're at pure Flix, which is again, another pop culture place, which you guys just had, you guys had unplanned, right? Yeah. Yeah. We distributed unplanned. Um, that kind of exploded. It was crazy. I mean, did you get a chance to see it? I haven't seen it. It was at my theater just down the road, but as you know, being a mom of two little kids. Oh, and please. I haven't full been to time. a movie in like two years, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't totally. go to the movies. I actually one day was going to take an afternoon and go see it, but then of course things got crazy and I of couldn't course. do it. So, but I plan to watch it. I want to watch it, although I know it'll break my heart. Um, how did that happen? Do you feel like it's making like a huge impact? I do. I, I mean, I personally do. I think when you look at what's going on right now, and I don't care, like I try to argue based on facts and it looks like sometimes I'm defending legislation or, you know, I've been, I, I'm more annoyed and bothered and annoyed is the wrong word. I think probably heartbroken to borrow from what you just said, you know, I'm more heartbroken that people are more concerned with the right of somebody to end a life than they are with the actual ending of the life that has always killed me. It's like, well, okay, even if you're pro-choice, how do you not get to the place of saying, this is a tragedy. Ending a life is wrong. It's a tragedy and we should mourn it. Even if I think people should have that right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, that is what kills me. So when people are so outraged over a ban, an abortion ban in Alabama, my heart and my mind go to, well, why weren't you this outraged that almost a million kids a year are being killed? Right? Like, why does that not mm -hmm. bother you? And so that's what drives a lot of my messaging. But I think when you look at that movie, the impact it had. I mean, there were so many stories of people who saw the movie and their minds were changed. There were, uh, you know, reports of around a hundred clinic workers, and this is as of a couple months ago, who saw the film and who changed their minds as a result of it. I um, saw that story. It's crazy. So it's crazy. I think the reason that the movie is effective is, and I would also say that the people in the film, when you see it, 
the clinic workers that are represented, the the problem that critics are going to have with this is that they're humanized. You're watching real life people. They're not demonized. They're not made to look like horrible, awful people. They're made to look like human beings who are working in a clinic and that's what their job is. And that's the reality for a lot of these, of these people. And so I think that's a challenge because it fairly represents the issue. You know, Planned Parenthood says it's, it was a movie that lied. That's not true. They, they always accuse everyone of lying, but yet they're the ones who aren't telling the truth. So it's like, but yeah, so I think it's effective because it presents and, and throws in your face the reality of what abortion is. And once you see that you're confronted internally with a reality of, wow, am I okay with that? And no yeah. sane person is okay with it. Yeah, they... I, I think that I'm looking forward to seeing it. And I'm, I'm glad that you said that about portraying people as not demonizing them because I'm sure that people on the pro-choice side of the aisle feel very attacked and they feel like you're attacking their character and attacking who they are as people, like sure. their morality. And um, I know plenty of good people who are not with me on this issue. And I do sometimes find that hard to grasp or to wrestle with because I just, I can't understand. I can't understand how you're not with me on this. But, um, the truth is that there is a, um, I feel like a, I don't know what the word, the term I'm trying to use is just like a, uh, something's missing and Mm -hmm. it's not because people are evil. Um, it's not because, you know, someone that I disagree with on this issue is a bad person. And um, I think that gets lost in the conversation and the vitriol that gets spit back and forth both ways. You know, I oh, think totally. the other side is is saying somehow that the pro-lifers are, you know, bad, hateful people. And um, the, the, the uh, message of our humanity, like in so many of these arguments that we get into online, whatever the issue, that's lost because we're not sitting down and talking and having conversations across the table. We're just tweeting at each other. Yeah. And, you know, I think the real challenge too, and I, and I think we have to be fair and, you know, we talk in extremes on this issue and I want to be careful how I say this, but okay. So you're, let's say you're three months pregnant and you get a cancer diagnosis that you need to immediately begin treatment on. You're, you're in a really tough position. You don't have a viable baby, right? You don't have a baby that you could just say, okay, now most pro-life people would say you should wait to seek treatment or take a chance on treatment and, and hope it doesn't you – know, maybe most pro-lifers would say that. But all I would say is that, okay, the other side has a valid point that that needs to be discussed and talked mm-hmm. about. But that is a reality sure. that people do – it's very rare, but people do find themselves in the midst of that reality. And there are plenty of very brave women who choose to either wait or they they, they start – you know, seeking treatment and they pray that their babies are going to be fine. I just think we need to be sympathetic and understand that that's a reality yes. for people. Yeah. Sympathetic and sympathetic to the rape and incest stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the, that's a, you know, there, there's no exception in the Alabama law and I fully understand why people are really angry about that. Agreed. Like, yeah. I, you know, I, I struggle with that because, you know, to me to have like consistency and logic, like, yeah, like I personally don't think that you probably should abort a baby that's right. born and right. that's conceived in that case. But gosh, I've never been raped and I've never had that happen to me. So I, I don't know how you would feel. And I, I, I don't know that I feel comfortable not having an exception for it, to be honest. Yeah. Because it's sort of like one of those things where I guess where I always land is it's always immoral to end a heartbeat, right? Like that's my view, but it's always, a, it's an immoral act. And I don't, and I'm not saying that to judge women who have done it. I'm saying that because based on the issue itself, I think, I think abortion as an act is, is immoral. Um, but I understand why somebody would not want to carry a baby that to term that they were 
that that was a result of rape. I absolutely understand that. And I think having the exemption makes sense. I was reading, and I don't know if it was the sponsor or the co-sponsor of that bill, they were very open about the fact that they went extreme on it because mm-hmm. they wanted to get to the Supreme Court. They want that chance to overturn Roe. You know, so I, I think, it on the daily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still think they could have. Here's the other thing that's interesting about this, right? Like when you look at the Marist polling on this, the majority of Americans want to cap, including like 61% of pro-choicers, they want to cap abortion at three months. That you actually mm-hmm. have a consensus on that. Well, to me, that makes sense. Like I... Well, first of all, I think another misconception that people have is that even if even if Roe v. Wade was overturned, that still doesn't mean it would be federally um, outlawed. It would be again back to the states to to make that decision. Um, and that's right, right? I'm not getting. Yeah, that no, that's that's exactly. <laughs> okay. It's so funny you said that. Cause <laughs> I was just. just make sure. I was. Hey guys, just wanted to jump in here real quick to let you know about two books that are available. Billy's book, Fault Line, How a Seismic Shift in Culture is Threatening Free Speech and Shaping the Next Generation, relates back to our conversation about politics and faith today. And my book, Leaving Cloud Nine, The True Story of a Life Resurrected from the Ashes of Poverty, Trauma, and Mental Illness, is available on Amazon as well. My book, Leaving Cloud Nine, is the story of my husband's life growing up in poverty, trauma, abuse, all the things he went through and eventually overcame through his faith in Christ. It is a hard read, but a good one, redemptive, um, something that I think that we can really all appreciate. So um, if you're looking for any new reads, head over to Amazon and check those out. And now back to our conversation. So yeah, so the most logical thing to me would be if we were going to put a put a law around it would be first trimester, just because like you were saying, the polling really, that's where it lands in terms of the general population. Uh, now, I'm still not comfortable with that. I remember being pregnant um, and thinking, and even as someone who's been pro-life forever and has really been on top of this issue, when I went in for my ultrasound at nine and a half weeks, nine and a half weeks, okay, that is nothing. Um, I and I was shocked, shocked. I was like, oh my gosh, like that looks like a baby. And I, I didn't think that was going to happen, and I could not believe it. And so that's why it is just incomprehensible to me. Like, have, and it doesn't even having, like, being pregnant, sure, like that added to it, but honestly, it didn't add that much significance to it. Like, because I felt like I already got it. Like, I was like, I get it. <laughs> I get it more exactly. now, you know? So, um, it's just, uh, you know, it's a conversation I think we'll be having for a very long time. Um, and I know that I think it's going to dominate next year. I feel, I feel like I'm, I know it always dominates to a degree, but I honestly think the level to which this has gone right now. And I think unplanned is just a small piece of that, but I think it's, it's almost like, it's like the, a lot of Legos piling on top of each other. Maybe it's, maybe it's more like, um, Jenga or what's that game where you're piling the little <laughs> wood pieces and it's going to topple over and everyone's going to lose their minds. And I feel like that's kind of where we're at with it right now. Well, but, I don't know about you. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. Okay, sorry. I don't know about you, but um, I have to step away a lot of time. Like I have refused. I haven't let myself get into the arguments this week or the past few weeks on Twitter because I can't do it. Like this, my stress levels, like when I'm in a Twitter argument, especially about this issue, 
skyrocket and I have just had to make the decision that I'm not doing it anymore. And, um, and so I, I'm not looking forward to this issue dominating, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it doesn't sound like a fun fight to me. I'd rather fight about economics. Uh, so <laughs> like, let's fight about like the debt or something that's way exactly. easier for me to stomach. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be, uh, something big and I can't wait to see unplanned. Now, something else I wanted to ask you about, um, I was looking through your podcast guests and I was like, man, he knows a lot of people. Like you've had some pretty big names on and you've met a lot of kind of pretty famous people. Um, Wanted to ask you how you ended up meeting so many cool people and, and what are your networking tips? Because you must be really good at it. You know, it's it's funny because over the years when I was at The Blaze, I met a lot of publicists. And so, you know, one of the things was just connecting with publicists. And I always kind of like in the back of my mind, you know, I'm like, oh, publicists, you know, like dealing. I, I always hated the idea of dealing with them. But I've come to make some really good friends in that world. And you know, just meeting people who represent Christian artists and meeting people who work at publishers, you know, like, you know, this, you know, having a connection in with, with a book publisher, they will come and tell me, Oh, here are the books that are coming out. Here's, here's who has a book. And so for me, a lot of the people I end up, you know, communicating with, they have a project, whether it's a movie or a show or a book. And a lot of times we get to have conversations outside of that project. Cause that's always my goal. It's like, well, great. You have a book to sell and we'll, we'll promote that, but let's talk about other things. And so, yeah. you know, I have to say though, the biggest tool for me has been Twitter over the years. And, really? and, and it's so weird to say that, but I mean, Twitter's also become something that I struggle with for the same reasons you just outlined of being overwhelmed by the negativity and trying not to get sucked back into that. Cause I made a real commitment not to be a jerk to people on social media. <laughs> and so I will retweet things that people are, who are attacking me or saying things and I'll LOL or whatever, but, or I'll try to make a point back. But uh, but anyway, Twitter has been for networking really powerful because I think it knocks down that wall that exists so many times between celebrities and the outside world where if someone follows you or if there's a way to try to tweet at them and connect with them, I mean, so many interviews and friendships have come out of that. Um, and so for me, I would just say, I would say social media, ironically, for all the horrible things that it ushers in really can be a place to connect, um, but yeah, I also had this thing I used to call the stalking method, which is absolutely terrible. But I would teach my inter I would teach my interns, you know, here's how we track people down. And, you know, to try to get information, to try to reach out to them. And so um always everyone has an email address. So I'm always about trying to figure out, okay, what's the email address? How do we right. connect? But um and one other thing I would say, I've always worked for places that people on the other side might not want to speak to because of the the reputation or, oh, they're conservative or, oh, they're Christians or whatever. And so I've always kind of gone out of my way to be really fair to people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. And so in interviews over time, when you do that and you instead of instead of going in to have, you know, a primetime news fight with somebody on a podcast, actually having a conversation that goes a long way and it brings, they tell other people and then you're able to reconnect with some really cool people. So that's my rant. Who is, have you ever had like a big dream get and like you sent them a direct message and they actually responded and you were surprised? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm trying to think on that. Um, well, I saw that you had Christine Kane on, which was like, yes. I thought that was a pretty big get. Like she's 
a big time these days. Yes. And that, yeah. And in fact, you know, we exchanged emails and I have her on an influencer list. I also keep an influencer list, which is uh-huh. something that, um, you know, it, it, I basically send out, send out an email once a month. It should be every week, but realistically once it's a hard. month, <laughs> it is, it is. And there's about 220 people on it, but people you would know who are either pastors. So I, Christine Kane is somebody who's on that list. Um, and so I try to keep in touch with them as well, not only just because, oh, I want to interview them, but because it's like, hey, this is a great way for us to kind of cultivate. And I've had people reach out and ask, hey, can you can you let everyone on the list know this or that? And so it's a little, I tried to build a little community around it. I'm not the yeah. best at fostering it. but Well, you do have a very large social media following, I noticed. Yeah, well, in I, I've tried, I had tried to build that, you know, on Twitter. I mean, it really started for me with Twitter and I kind of, I've lagged behind on Instagram. Well, you were probably edit. like me that you started Twitter in like 2007 or 2008 exactly. when it first popped yeah. up. And so like over time, that really builds. Exactly. And then everyone knows everyone too. So it's nice because you can be like, oh, can you help me reach, you know, hey, Erica, totally. you know, so-and-so. Because um, everybody knows that they're going to want a favor from someone else sometimes. So they always want to like give the favor to you. You know, it is crazy. And I, I was going to ask you about this. I mean, how do you avoid on social and just in general, because we're rewarded for tweeting and saying things that are, I mean, look at Trump, right? Tweeting something that's, that's offensive or tweeting something that's, you know, Ooh, that's going to really get people riled up. How do you avoid that? How have you traditionally avoided that? Uh, sorry. So, so how have I avoided saying just, something that's like, uh, firing people up in a bad way? <laughs> like following, you know, yeah. Cause I didn't describe that well, but f- falling into the trap <laughs> of trying to get attention by tweeting things or saying things or, that are or just falling into the trap of being, maybe portraying myself in a way that isn't Christ-like. I've definitely yes. fallen yeah, into yeah. that trap. Um, <laughs> well, I'm much better at it these days. I'll tell you that. I, I recently did one of those uh, big, massive tweet deletions where all of my tweets, because, you know, like I said, since 2008, I had like, I don't know, it was like 60,000, 70,000, maybe more tweets. I can't remember what the number was. And I saw this trend of people deleting their old, old tweets. And I was like, I think I'm going to do that because I don't know what I said back then. And I'm sure it wasn't um, the kind of stuff that I'm saying now. Um, I just came to a place where I was like, I, you know, I recognized you know what, you, everything that you do and say is a represent, representation of Jesus. And if, if what you're doing and saying doesn't represent him well, then, then, uh, then you shouldn't be saying it. And so I'm very conscious of that. Um, now, do I always uh, succeed? No. Uh, but I try to always be respectful. And I, found, I have found people on the left who I've kind of conversed with on Twitter have come back to me and said, well, that was oh, I wasn't expecting you to say that. Like, thanks for being respectful. Or like, wow, I appreciate that you're willing to have this conversation with me even though we disagree. I have a few people on there that I don't know in real life that regularly push back on things that I tweet. Um, And they're super lefty. But I never come back at them in a way that's disrespectful or angry. And for that reason, we have these conversations and we go back and forth and we don't ultimately agree. But I think I have I have come to value so much this conversational dialogue thing that we need to um, promote these days, um, more so in the past year, especially. Um, And so to me, I always go back to that. And um, I've noticed, you know, that you are always, um, I see that you have some kind of a strategy or thought process behind what you're putting out there. I see a lot of really positive 
kind of um, lines or memes or whatever. Do you have a strategy behind that for yourself? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, and I always tell people, I'm going to say this to you on this so that people can hear it. If you ever see me tweet something that you're like, you know what, that was not a good representation of Christ, like DM me and let me know because I do think we should all hold each other accountable because it is easy to, to slip back into into that. But to answer your question, you know, my plan has been, I've been getting up every morning to journal and I pray, I, I pray through journaling because I'm terrible at praying sometimes. I just like my mind trails off. It's like ADHD. I don't know. It's just like I'm praying and then I start thinking about, oh, I, I think get we all have that problem. <laughs> exactly. So I write my prayers out. So I've been doing that every morning since March because I realized I had this prayer journal that I started in 2014 when I had a two year old before our second kid. And I did not finish that prayer journal until March of 2019. And I said to myself, that's insane. That is years of one little journal that could have been done. So since March, I've committed no matter what happens, except for weekends, um, during the week, I have to get up, I get up early and I have to pray. And I, and I always write a scripture or, or, you know, either a verse or a quote in there. And then I'll take a picture of it and share it, which sounds silly, but I'll share it on social. And that is like the one thing that I do that I try to do every day. And the crazy thing is I finished a journal, an entire prayer journal in two months. So I just started a new yeah. one. It was like, it's wow, amazing I could what a plan will do for you. It is. It is. So yeah, I just, I want to represent Christ well. And I want, when I, when we all die, like it doesn't matter what we tweeted or what shows we got to go on, whether we were on Fox news or like, I've just kind of thrown all that to the side. And I'm like, literally God, if you want me to go be a janitor, you know, over here, I'll do that. If you want me to go work at Starbucks, if you want me to talk more, I'll talk more. So that outside of my morning plan, which on social that I, that I take a picture of, I've got nothing else. I mean, I just try to, I I was going to say, do you ever struggle with you know, you're sort of in the public eye. You're you're an author. You've, like I said, you've got a large social following. You've got a lot of great connections. Um, I sometimes struggle with wanting more of that. I want to yeah. write another book. I want my writing to be more visible. I want people to recognize me as a leader yeah. in the space. Um, but then sometimes I get kind of a check, check um, from whether it's doing my Bible reading or praying or a sermon that I hear or something that it's like, you know, this isn't about that. This is about, you know, if you can do something greater for God's kingdom in that way, great. But if not, like you are supposed to make a difference in the lives of the people around you, like your neighbors, like your literal neighbors. Um, But I do struggle sometimes with the desire to have a higher profile or get accolades for things that I'm doing. And I have to really rein that in sometimes. Do you ever struggle with that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I would honestly say that you know, when I was at the blaze, that's all I wanted. I wanted, I want to go on Hannity. I want to do this. I want to do that. And every action I took would be to get more attention. And that was sort of like in line kind of with the Twitter thing that I was asking before. I wasn't willing to say anything or do anything, of course, but I wanted that attention and I felt like attention equaled success. And Mm -hmm. it's probably been the last six months where I've really taken that since I've been journaling more and praying more where I still struggle with it because, you know, I wrote, uh, I wrote three books and the first one did okay. The second one uh, was a complete failure and the third one did well, did well, you know, and it was like, but that second one was one I was so passionate about. And I started to kind of measure myself based on the sales of the book, right? Um, where I felt like I'm just not successful. I'm a failure. And you start to internalize these things. And then everything you do, it's like, well, if I got enough likes on that, then that means that I'm, you know, a, a better person almost. It's, it's so silly, you know, but, yeah. but we, 
But yeah, and I have to constantly rein myself in and just say, you know what, God, where do you want me? What do you want me to say today? How do you want me to act today? What do you want from me? And when I start the day with that, I find it's easier to, to get myself out of that mindset. Yeah, I, I sometimes, you know, I stop. Like I was having... <laughs> You know, for having two little kids that are three and one and, you know, my daughter's whole first year of her life, um, you know, my book came out and it was really crazy. And I would find myself sometimes like doing work, like after work and hold on, hold on, hold on. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, I know. I this know. is so, who cares about like finishing out this thing that needs to be done? Like, stop, be here and like it, at the end of the, at the end of your life, you're not going to be sitting on your deathbed. And nobody's going to care if you ended up getting published in the Wall Street Journal, which is a huge goal of mine, and that is still a goal. But at the end of the day, no one is going to remember what I got published in the Wall Street Journal. And I have to remember that that really doesn't matter. Um, and I need to, you know, if God wants me to say something that is going to get out to a large audience of people, like He is going to make that happen. It is not up to me. And so um, I think it's just kind of always every day, like remembering those things and keeping it in check and recognizing that it's really not about our, um, I mean, you do have to, you know, work hard, but again, it's not about your individual, just your pursuits. It's like, where's God leading your life? And he's going to open those doors for you. Yeah. And it's, it's so hard to transition the mindset from, you know what, God, like I'm going to do for me and I'm going to, I'm going to do things that elevate my profile and then switching to God, I'm going to do things that elevate your profile. And that mm -hmm. is where I'm really trying to be. And what I have found is that I'm happier when I'm focused on that, that I yeah, don't totally. really like, I'm really trying not to care. You know, I've, I've had a bunch of proposals I've been toying around with for books and I have been putting the work in, but it's like, well, I don't know. It may be that these are not things that I'm supposed to do and, and always trying and by the way, I don't know how you do it with a three and a one year old. I have a six and a three year old and it's like, it's crazy. But, you know, I, I don't know, just trying to say like, is, do I need to spend more time with my kids and my wife or do, or do I need to be over here doing this? And I'm seeing time as more of a commodity that is more important than money. And that, and that's kind of the first time I've looked at things that way, to be honest. So it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I just got a, an offer to do some consulting work this week for like, I don't know, like a few thousand dollars. And I was like, you know, my eyes were like, okay, I really need to pay down this. And like, that would exactly. be so great to have this. And, and I was like, no, because the thought of doing it just like, like my stress level began to raise just thinking about it. And I was like, you need to say no, you need to say no. So I said no, but, um, yeah, yeah. It's so hard to say no. Sometimes I always say so yes hard. and it screws me over because I end up being overwhelmed, you know, yeah. and that's, yeah. So, and, and just the money thing. I mean, that, that's another part of it. Cause of course, when you got kids, like they cost oh, a yeah. lot. <laughs> oh yeah. It's a money pay. And it only, and like, as they get older, I'm seeing with my six year old, it's like, oh, it only costs more as time. I was like, oh, we're done with diapers. We're good to right. go. And it's like, no, now there are other things to pay for. And then like experiences you want to give them and things you want to do. And, and you're saving so, for college. <laughs> oh gosh. I know. It's like, it's crazy. And I know for you, one of the things that I, I did want to ask you about, because now we're about a year out from when you put Leaving Cloud Nine out. And for those who don't know, um, the book is a memoir about your husband's life. Um, really, really fascinating book. What what have you, in light of all we're talking about, um, and in light of kind of publishing your first book and being out there, I mean, you were traveling all over, you were speaking, you were doing a lot of media what have you learned? Like, what was the big lesson for you after that, after that book? Oh man, I, I feel like I learned a lot from the process. I mean, both in terms of writing and publishing and just 
you know, what is, you know, the larger, going back to what I was just talking about, the larger idea of how much does success matter. Uh, in terms of writing and publishing, I would say I had no idea what I was doing or what I was getting into. And the way I got a book deal and how it all played out was just kind of a whirlwind. Like I never in a million years thought that I would get a traditional book deal and publish my book and have it sitting on the shelves at Barnes and Noble. That was never even something I dreamed of really. I mean, I dreamed of it, but like it was like a very far off dream. <laughs> and it's so crazy. Um, and it happened. And, and I do believe that it happened because it was uh, God wanted it to happen. Like I did not make it happen. I, you know, a lot of people try for years with book proposals and getting agents and they want to make it happen. That wasn't my, my experience. Like I tried, I had one try. I got it on the first try. That's not normal. Um, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, you know, looking back, I think back, I think I would have spent much more time writing it this way. I would have gotten a lot more feedback on that. Like had I any clue that it was going to get to this point, but when, by the time it got to that point, I really didn't have the time to really <laughs> fix a whole lot of the things I might've fixed if I did have the time. So there's that. But then the other side of it is just like, okay, like, um, the book did not become a bestseller and most of them don't most <laughs> books like that like 99.9% don't yeah. <laughs> most of them and I didn't think it would but I was still really disappointed in kind of like the sales side of things and uh, have gone through a lot of like negative self-talk and you know kind of oh, putting yeah. myself down in terms of like oh it wasn't like I'm almost embarrassed sometimes like oh maybe maybe it was just a huge mistake and you know I have a lot like irrational self-talk that I go through but then you know, I have to go back and be like, this happened for a reason. Like, again, you didn't even make it happen yourself. And there are people who are being touched by this story um, and will continue to be touched. I mean, there are people that are going to pick this book up, who knows, maybe 10 years from now, because the stories that are in it of someone going through uh, ch child abuse and childhood trauma, like those are, unfortunately, those are never going to end. And so I don't know where the reach of this book will end. And so I have to kind of, you know, it's it's kind of a constant process of reminding myself that there's a reason for this. And, um, and you know, I should be proud of the skills and the ability and the opportunity that God gave me. Um, so that's, I feel like a really negative answer, but honestly, it no, is where I've been answer. in the past year. And we are oh, yeah. coming up on a year and I think I'll probably do like a reflection of that, maybe do some writing about like what, what I've learned and where I've been. Um, but I am um, moving on to try to potentially work on a second book, which is really scary, totally different kind of book. Um, but uh, one thing that I continually hear in my head that's kind of cliche but true is do it do it anyway, even if you're scared. Do it if you don't feel like you're ready or you're good enough um, because those are the only things that ever get done. <laughs> it's so true, and, and I love your answer because I think it's super honest, and, it, and that is what it's like to put – a book out and to hope that you're going to sell 20,000 copies, a hundred thousand copies, 10,000 copies, you know, to hope that you're going to hit a benchmark. And, you know, sometimes when that doesn't happen, it's, it's so disheartening. And I went through the same thing where it's like, Oh, you're just a failure. Or, oh, you know, and then you start thinking, well, maybe I need to get people to know me more. It just like feeds back into that whole dynamic, right? Yeah, you're that, like, oh, I need a bigger platform. I need to do this. Exactly. I need to do like it's never and, ending all the things that you need to do. <laughs> it's never ending. And I think that's why, when we place the focus where it's supposed to be. And it's so hard to trip off of that. And I know I do it all the time. And, and after I struggled with that, with that second book and I went through the same thing, I thought, you know, I don't know, like maybe there was 10 people who read that and it really changed their mind and showed them something. And that would make it worth it, right? You don't know that though when you put a book out. You don't know unless somebody comes and tells you. And then of course you start reading the reviews that people post and it's like, 
it can become frustrating because it's like, wait, they didn't even read it. Or if they did, they didn't understand what I was trying to do. So, yeah, it's it's a game of comparison. And we know that we're not supposed to compare ourselves to others. And so it's it's a good exercise and a good lesson. But I mean, I think your book is phenomenal. And I think you've you've started a conversation. You look at all the media you did on the book, too, all those places where even if they didn't buy copies that they heard this redemptive story um, that really changes people. So I commend you for it. Speaking of books, I did want to ask you a little bit about your books. Uh, now, you've written three, right? Yes. Yeah, I've done three. And, and so what would you say are the top line things you've learned as an author? I mean, I wish we could talk a lot longer and hear more about all of those things. But what are some things that you've learned? I would say the the big thing is the comparison thing. Do not compare to other people. Do not look and see, you know, oh, is, is their book selling better than mine? It's really just to like pray through. And that's why it's taken me a long time to do another book because it's like, what does God want me to do? What message should I be writing on? And so, um, but also just that it takes a lot of hard work and dedication to get a book done, first of all. And then I think the harder part is what you do after, you know, how you get the book out there. So um, for me, it's just to rely more on God in whatever process, not just a book, whatever project, whatever you feel like you've been called to do, um, to do it to your best ability. And and at the end of the day, we are only in control of so much of what happens. And so mm-hmm. that that's been a blessing to kind of take that away. Um, but also just knowing that, hey, you know, I had a chance to write. Most people never get a chance to write a book. And it's such a blessing to be able to do that. And so... Um, I think those are the big things for me is just being grateful, even though I spent a lot of time lamenting the fact that my second book didn't sell very well. Um, you know, and being honest about that. I'm, when I talk to publishers and agents, I'm super honest. I'm like, that book didn't do well. And so, you know, when I do the next book, I want it to do well, not just because, you know, I want to have a big platform, but because it's like, I want to be able to write more. I love to write. And so, um, I want to choose the right thing that God wants a, but then B that will have a big enough impact to allow me to continue doing what I do. Well, it's encouraging to me that you say your second book didn't sell well, but then you still got a third book. Yeah. Yeah. And the third one I co-wrote, um, which was a totally different experience. And that was a lot of fun. I learned a lot and it was, it was great. And so a lot of that about, was that the one, which one was that? That about. was left standing. So that was about um, a terror survivor. It was his story. So, yes, that's what yes. I thought. And mm-hmm. so it was totally different. It was from his perspective. We wrote, we wrote it with him. Um, you know, there were two of us who wrote it with him. And it just it took a lot of the pressure off, too, because it was his story. You know, So it was kind of nice to have a project that I didn't have to be the one. You know, and, and I've thought a lot about doing a devotional next. Like, that's something that I kind of feel like I really want to do. And so... Yeah, there's there's so much, you know, that we can do. Thank God, you know, and you have a platform and and I do too and it's it's great, but but just trying to make sure it's in line with what I should be doing. So that's always the lesson I'm trying to continue learning over and over again. <laughs> so, speaking of books and we were unfortunately we're going to have to close out our conversation, but I was wondering, I love to hear what people are reading or anything good that you've read lately. Do you have anything? You know, that's a great question. I let me think here. If, well, friend, while you're thinking, I can give you mine. <laughs> give me you yours. Want. Give me yours. Because um, I've got a bunch, but go ahead. Yeah, I know. It's so hard. I actually, while we were talking, I had to like think, okay, I know I'm going to say this. Um, yeah, so I just finished this book called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. And it's all about um, the reasons behind uh, depression and anxiety and, and addiction as well. And it's really interesting. I mean, he's a great writer and a great researcher. And he goes to the, um, he, he talks a lot about, 
why antidepressants as the, like the pill antidepressants, like why they are really not as effective as people have made them out to be. And it's really fascinating. He does all these studies and experiments and talks to all these researchers. And I was just completely fascinated by the book and also related to it because I was like, yeah, you know, I've, I've been on my share of antidepressants and anti-anxiety and have never felt like they really did a whole lot for me. And, you know, there's a lot, there's some controversy there, but really fascinating book. And then I'm in the middle of the book Clean by David Sheff, who's the author of Beautiful Boy. Uh, and this is all kind of research for my upcoming book, but, um, but another really uh, well-written, well-researched, really fascinating book. So that's those are the two that I'm on right now. I love that. Well, right now, currently, I've been reading a lot of devotional content. But the one book that I recently finished, and I was having a hard time remembering the title of it because life is chaos and my brain is terrible. Um, but it's <laughs> Counterculture. Uh-huh. It's Counterculture. It's by David Platt. It's a few years old. Um, but the, it, the subtitle is Following Christ in an Anti-Christian Age. And it's such a good book. I mean, it it takes all of the arguments from marriage down the line and really helps you understand from a Christian perspective why um, and how you navigate that in today's culture. And I just found it helpful in light of where we are, social media, the chaos, and going into 2020. Again, it's counterculture. So I'd recommend that one. It's so good. Yeah, I think I did read that several years ago. Yeah, it came out in like 20, I want to say 2012 or 2015. I can't remember, but it, I just had picked it up and read it and was like, wow, this is, it's just one of those books I feel like can help any Christian. Well, and, and even David those, Platt's really good. He has another one, right? That's really big. Yeah, and he's got one that's coming out that I just got an advanced copy of, and I'm forgetting the title of it. But yeah, he has, he's done a bunch of books, and all of them are good. Um, I th- just Jesus or something. There's also Radical. I think Radical's the yes, other Radical's one. Yes, Radical's yeah. the first one I read. Yeah, okay. so I think Counterculture is just a good guidance book to understand. Even if you're on the other side, like you don't agree with Christianity, okay, well, why do Christians believe what they believe? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to do this again sometime. I love this. We have to. This has been so much fun. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. I will see you back on our regularly scheduled Tuesday interviews. Have a good one. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.